0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier Early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I don't know about you, but I was completely nuts when I was a teenager. I was a terrible person. My mother uh, likes to tell a story about the one time when I was 16, when she looked over at me during dinner and I was smiling, and she realized that it was the first time she'd seen me smile uh, in years. So, I definitely could have used some meditation, but I can't imagine that anybody would have been able to convince me to do it. However, Jess Morey, who's my guest this week, does just that. She's the executive director of a group called Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, or IBMe. And they take kids ages 14 to 19 to residential retreat centers and out into the woods for hiking and meditation. She's got a super interesting backstory as well. And uh, I think this is uh, an episode that parents in particular are going to be really interested in. But even if you're not a parent, her story and what she does now is super interesting. So here we go. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. You started meditating as a teenager. How did that happen?
1: Uh, So I was 14. And my mom used to go to the Insight Meditation Society.
0: In Barrie, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Any, by the way, that's where I go meditate, B-A-R-R-E, Massachusetts. Awesome place. If you're going to go on a retreat, um, that's the place to do it, or one of the best places to, to do it.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. So they, my mom would go there and do 10-day retreats every year when I was younger. Um, so this was like in the eighties. And
0: were your dad, was your dad cool with that or, or was it like annoying for him?
1: Uh, my dad, my parents were divorced when I was two. Ah, okay. So. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: And so who stayed with you when you did it? I
1: don't actually remember. That's a good. (laughs) You
0: were running wild.
1: (laughs) Some of the times I think we were. Awesome. Yeah.
0: So age 14, what were you like as a 14 year old that, that idea struck you as even remotely reasonable? My parents did all sorts of things that there was no way I would have done.
1: Yeah. And well, so they started a teen meditation retreat right around then the first Uh ones happened. And I, I was interested in it my, since I was really little. Actually, I would beg my mom to take me with her to go meditate with her friends. And then I would sit for like two minutes but, um, and then read a book. So I, don't, I just was kind of always interested in meditation. Were and you I th- a good kid? Yeah, I was, I was probably a good kid. Yeah. I mean, on some, like of course, as a teenager, I did drugs and partied and stuff. Rebelled a little bit, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to some degree. Um, but yeah, I was basically a good kid. But at the same time, she sent my brother who was, would probably have not been in the good kid category. So, and so we, we, she had to really kind of encourage him strongly to go. But, the, I mean, the atmosphere, there's just kind of an atmosphere of peace. So even he, at first, he, like we really didn't want to be there, but he settled in and loved it.
0: But, I, I mean, yes, there was an atmosphere of peace.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, I mean, just I'm still a teenager in many ways, and when I'm there, I rebel against it. I feel like I'm at summer camp. And the counselors get to go out at night and have fribbles at friendlies or whatever, and mm. I got to stay there and eat the vegetarian food and meditate and listen to dharma talks and blah blah blah. I, I, you didn't have any of that.
1: No, well, the thing is, when you're in the teen retreats, especially the early days, like there were no rules, so we didn't. We <laughs> like it wasn't silent kind oh. of ever. I mean, okay. we would meditate when we were meditating in the hall. We basically were silent, but all the people that were running the teen retreats didn't have kids, so they kind of had no ideas how to that you were supposed to make rules for. Teens, so we would like be we'd be in each other's rooms till like three in the morning and running. Oh, so this is is fun. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I, this is sort of like insider information, but now it's totally different. This Uh, is not
0: the way you run your. It's not
1: the way that we run our retreats now. At some point, someone figured out that teenagers needed a a bedtime, Mm -hmm. and the boys shouldn't go in the girls' rooms. Got a little bit more. We we all kept the precepts like we took the five mindfulness precepts, and we basically kept them.
0: Basically, promising. Not you're do. not going to do a variety of things, right? Misuse your sexuality, kill, lie, steal,
1: do drugs or alcohol, do right, no
0: intoxicants, yeah. right?
1: And we and we basically kept those. I mean, I, I did. I think most people did. But then we would just we like be we'd be like downstairs in the walking meditation hall, like at two in the morning, playing light as a feather, stiff as a board.
0: <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but it sounds vaguely illicit.
1: Like where you try to levitate people.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, gotcha. Just
1: like running, it was awesome. Those were the good old days. And
0: did you prac Did you connect with the practice at that time, or was it all about light as a feather, stiff as a board?
1: Yeah, um, I, th- I think, I think what I connected with again was the atmosphere and the kind of the and en- the connection and attention of the adults that were there was the biggest thing that I connected with when I was fourteen, fifteen. But then I started to get really into actually the practice, and I had experiences of. You're just having that, a mind state of peace, like a moment when you're kind of quiet, calm. Yeah, so I loved it. So that's probably when I was 16, 17. And then when I was, so when I was 17, I did a 10-day retreat at IMS, an adult retreat.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's hard mm-hmm. for adults.
1: It was super hard. That was really hard. It was like, wait, what, where's the hacky sack?
0: Yeah, and but then you quadrupled down. You graduated from high school yeah. and you went to Burma yeah. for three months?
1: Uh, I was in Burma for most of the year. <laughs> yeah,
0: where you lived at a monastery, right?
1: For a yeah, a big portion of it. And
0: mm-hmm. I, I, you, you've said that when you called your father yeah. to tell him you're doing this, he cried.
1: Yeah, he did. Actually, my mom and I had gotten in a fight when I graduated, so I was living with my dad. Oh, so, so you th- told him face to face? Yeah, I just said that, and uh, which was great because my mom couldn't tell me I couldn't go, <laughs> and my dad couldn't tell me I couldn't go because he didn't really, he wasn't able to tell me to do things. So. He cried.
0: So you, but you did, and you did it. And why did you want to do it? And how was it?
1: So on that teen retreat, the, right after I had graduated from high school, I went back to the teen retreat. And I, don't, I literally was like sitting in a meditation. I just got the idea in my head. Go to Burma.
0: <laughs> I get all sorts of ideas in my head, but I don't act on them.
1: I know. It was like one of those really vivid, almost like a voice in my head. And plus, I was like, I had a teenage brain. Yeah. So I was yeah, yeah. like.
0: No impulse control. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, of course, it took, it was less than an impulse, but totally not looking at the risks. Yeah. I just was like, sure, I'll do that. And I think a number of the staff for the teen retreat had been recently, had been to Burma or were going to Burma. So I had heard them saying they were going to do that. So I just decided that's what I want to do.
0: All by yourself? Mm-hmm. And did you make arrangements in advance for, to be at a monastery?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I asked the staff who were going to Burma just said, where, you know, where should I go? Which I think at this point is so crazy. Nobody was like, uh, maybe you shouldn't do that. But, so um, where did you go? I went to Saida Upandita's okay, so monastery. Just
0: for people who don't know, Saida Upandita is a legendary meditation teacher known to be pretty hardcore and strict, although I understand could be very nice with some people depending on what the chemistry was mm-hmm. there. But it's a really – it's a hardcore style of teaching. Um and it's very very much in silence um if, if i you mm-hmm. correct me where I go yeah. wrong here, and it's about achieving what's known as streametry, which mm-hmm. is the um the first stage of enlightenment where you have an experience of nirvana and he's he's like a field marshal getting getting the troops uh, in mm-hmm. that direction and here you are eighteen year old kid and you show up there what was it like um, he, he recently died by the way yeah
1: right? mm-hmm. yeah, and well, so actually the reason I went there was because he was the teacher who started teen retreats in the US. He was teaching at IMS and he was doing a three month and he was like, How come there's no young people at these retreats? And so uh he said, You guys should do teen retreats. So my teachers, Michelle McDonald and Steve Smith, said sure, we'll try that. And so that's that's why I kinda and and then he came to them so I knew I'd met him a few times. Oh, okay. The chemistry with me was very warm. I mean it was kind of very fatherly. All he ever asked me about was like how did how the food was and like he would tell me to brush my hair.
0: He didn't <laughs> well, He didn't get super granular about your actual practice?
1: No, I didn't actually interview with him. I interviewed with another teacher. And,
0: uh, j- j- sorry, yeah, I'm going to okay. you again. Just so people yeah. – the way it, it works on retreat <laughs> is that you, you – there are teachers and you, you have – di- I think in, in a Burmese uh, um, context, it's a daily interview. It's right? almost daily, yeah. So you mm-hmm. go and, and report your meditation experiences and they kind of get under the hood with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is – I don't – my experience – and everything you're saying is totally right on. Wake up was at 3 in the morning. And then you had breakfast at five, lunch at 10, and then you couldn't eat anything until the next day. You were supposed to only sleep four hours a night, and then all you were doing is meditating totally silent, sit, walk, just meditate. Um, it was really tough. Also, like, you know, at first in the monastery, you go to the bathroom and it's like a hole in a bucket of water. And I remember being like, I have no idea what to do with this, you know? So just culturally, it was really, and I got sticky rash like heat rash and they're biting ants and just physically i got food poisoning a few times so it was really intense and i would go into the minute and then but actually the thing is that my mind was was more intense than all of that like the physical pain was in some ways a relief because huh. my mind was so in so much pain
0: really mm-hmm. about what or was it was it content or just the fact that your mind was seeing the rapidity of of
1: what I realized, and so that's where I had, like, my big, uh, an initial really big insight. Um, what was that happening was that I was beating, it was, I was beating myself up. Like, what you kind of talk about so clearly, that every time I got lost in a thought, I would be beating myself up. I'd be like, you, you're, you can't do this, you're terrible, you're never going to get I still do that
0: it. every time I get lost in a thought. Well. It sucks.
1: <laughs> totally sucks. Yeah. But it sucks more when you don't know you're doing it. At least it. I can
0: distract myself out here, on, like, by going to watch TV yeah. or, you know, uh, kicking a ball mm-hmm. around my kid. Uh, you're in a retreat. It's just you, the
1: mm-hmm.
0: hole in the bathroom, and your mind.
1: Yeah. It was brutal. It was so brutal. But so the thing is, actually, what's cool is that it's less painful when you know that that's what's happening. It's even more painful when you don't know that that's happening.
0: And you didn't know it was happening.
1: At first, I totally didn't. I mean, yeah, at all. So basically, I was... um I would, go into the, I would go into the interviews with the teacher and I would describe my experience. And the teacher would just be like, oh, great, good practice. Literally, that's like almost all he ever said was great practice.
0: But you didn't say, oh, "Well, I'm kicking my own ass when I get, I, uh, when I go, get lost?
1: Well, because at that point, I was just like, I don't, I was like, I'm having a really hard time. Like, I really thought I might go crazy. And um, so the woman who's sharing, who's like in this little cootie next to me, there's actually, a teacher now named Annie Nugent who's mm-hmm. at IMS, and she was like, She'd always be outside walking and smiling, she was always smiling, right? And I was like, What is she doing? We go, oh, we're doing something different because this is a hell realm for me, and you somehow seem to be having a good time. So, uh, I think of this was maybe four weeks in or something, or a few. I ran over to her room and just was like, I, I can't do this anymore, and like, What are you doing that I'm not doing? So, kind of broke. Did she help you? Oh, amazingly, she's the one that pointed out that habit of mind of beating up. Of like, mm-hmm. she helped me to sort of trace back the thought process that was happening and those sort of shadow thoughts that were actually kind of uh, controlling everything.
0: Okay, well, say more about that. Because um, that that sounds like some NSA stuff there, but actually, <laughs> the it's actually thoughts. super. There's there's some there there.
1: Yeah. I mean it's sort of like those sort of those quiet, subtle thoughts that actually are in some ways they're quiet and subtle because there are beliefs. Like yeah. Right, right, right. Right? right. They're like, very hard to see them. Totally. They're the water we're swimming in. Exactly. So they're but they're sort of always quietly going on there in the background. And so and it's interesting, if you start looking at your mind and watching thought, if you do like thought meditation practice, you start to see the kind of different loudness and nature of these different kinds of thoughts. But it's basically those really quiet thoughts that are so pervasive. You're no good
0: at this. You're probably no good at anything. This is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. The rest of your life's going to suck.
1: Right. Totally. You're never. And then what was at that point, I was getting all that Buddhist doctrine, which when you're on teen retreat, there's kind of none of that. So I literally didn't even know. I was like, what is this about the Buddha? How come everyone keeps talking about the Buddha? So, uh, you know, we hadn't talked about no self. We hadn't talked about dukkha, uh, suffering. We hadn't talked about uh, impermanence. Like those weren't pieces of my training before. And so I'm there, and I, and I got it. I was like, yes, this is true. This is the way things are. I could really see the truth of it. And yet I was like, and I could see that, okay, this was a way out, but I couldn't do it. So then I just felt like stuck in the this black vortex of hopelessness.
0: Okay. There are a million <laughs> things I need to follow up with you. Uh, but step back for a second, because you said once you know you're beating yourself up, it's actually less painful. Yeah. I find that to be true, but I don't know if I can articulate why.
1: I know. why. What, I I think for me... It was like it creates a gap, creates a hole in the like in the movie or something. And then I could because I would believe it. And then I would actually how I would start to notice it was happening. I couldn't hear the thoughts. I still couldn't like hear you. You're terrible. You suck at this. You're never going to get it. I didn't actually kind of wasn't conscious of that. But I would start to feel this like dread, depressed kind of feeling and be like, oh, it just happened.
0: Right, 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 right. It just
1: happened. And then I would kind of, there's some kind of opening or letting go that would happen in that moment of it just happened, then go back to the breath. So it would kind of break the, like, train. So So let
0: me give you an experience in my Mm -hmm. own meditation to see if we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I struggle with a lot of doubt. Like, am Mm -hmm. I doing it right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Doubt. And it can make you fall asleep. It can make you restless. It can make you miserable. You're just, you know, it's a terrible feeling of... I'm, I'm getting lost in thought a million times. I'm no good at this. Um, am I using the wrong technique? Am I wasting my time? If, if if, I was in an MRI right now, what would it show? Am I doing this wrong? You know, It's just a whole spiral. Mm-hmm. And if I actually just say, that's doubt, it just like pops the balloon. Mm-hmm. So are we talking about the same yeah, thing? Yeah,
1: exactly. And so that, I mean, that basically what I was experiencing was self-doubt. But with a flavor of like self hatred.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. well, at least for me, the two are like yeah. so closely linked.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and also just seeing, and the, and then there is the insight where I suddenly was like, because I could feel the feeling, and I was like, this is this happens to me a lot. Like yeah. I know this feeling yeah, yeah. in yeah. my life. Right. So it was this real. I was like, whoa, is that was happening.
0: This is the background static of my yeah. entire life since mm-hmm. like sentience, and, uh, mm. and I didn't notice it until now.
1: Yeah. Totally. I just was in, I would just get caught up in this like depressed kind of dread feeling and not know what was going on.
0: So, just, did that end or was that the whole way it was the whole time for you?
1: Uh, okay. So, that at that monastery it was pretty painful the whole time.
0: <laughs> how how long were you there?
1: Uh, I was there for about a month and a half. And uh, then the you went to, then went to another monastery. So, then I was like, all right, I got to get out of here.
0: Okay. Well, before, before you get out of there, you, you hearken uh, back to what you said before about how this is the first time you were dealing with the buddhist doctrine of no self impermanence and dukkha that's a that that's a lot yeah so i don't know that you're gonna be able to give it like an exegesis on that but but see if you can a
1: little bit yeah so just to say like on the teen meditation retreats and then i also think in a lot of retreats at ims or just you know it's like feel your breath you kind of get a you get a Taste of peace in your mind, you wish you're, you do loving kindness, but they don't go into like Buddhist doctrine, right? And I also think in some ways it's not appropriate for adolescents. I do think there's sort of a, a stage of development when this might be appropriate. But basically, dukkha is the idea that there's suffering, that there's or stress or um, dissatisfaction in life. I mean, and you could go into an exegesis about this. I have so many opinions about it at this point. But when I heard it at that time, I heard basically life sucks and everything is painful.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> not quite what the Buddha meant. No,
1: at all. But that was definitely how I interpreted it and yeah. there's a way that I could say yeah that's kind of true and maybe and then like so it was like this hopelessness is it never going to get better? Right.
0: Basically I think a, a slight maybe modifier in the correct yeah, direction please. would be like life sucks if you're constantly grasping at things that won't last. Yeah.
1: Great. Totally. Yeah, and if you believe your thoughts. Yeah. Basically. And if you believe there's a you thinking yeah. the thoughts, right? That you have to protect yeah. and you know, get yeah get all these things for her. totally but at that time like not have i didn't there's no nuance for in the teaching you know because also it's like the teaching was sideo and pandita like speaking behind a fan and then it being translated
0: what speaking behind a fan
1: <laughs> this is what they do they like i think it's because they're trying to say like it's not him speaking it's the
0: it's the dharma coming yeah, through him yeah that's a little creepy yeah i mean I that's like mean the, the
1: least it's like the least the, of the, the weird smallest problem. <laughs> 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 I don't yeah. mean like
0: I, I I don't mean any disrespect yeah. towards Saida Open, who was a giant mm-hmm. um, so creepy might not have been the right but it's a, it's a, it's a bit it mm-hmm. would be off-putting I would imagine
1: yeah but again I mean you're in the middle of like it's just everything is right. at that point it's like there's no there's no normal so it's like, yeah True. sure
0: so do right. we need to get into impermanence so, and yeah and no I mean self? just
1: quickly imp- I guess impermanence being you know everything changes but then then the kind of and thing about impermanence that he would really emphasize was like, so you're going to die and everyone, you know, is going (laughs) to die. Everyone you love is going to die. And he would say that a lot, you know, so I'm this 18 year old and the one thing like kind of getting me through is I'd think about my family or my boyfriend at home or something. And, and then I was like, Oh no, I shouldn't think about them because they're just going to die. You you know? So it's just, I wasn't getting any nuance of the, of the teaching. And then the no self thing, zero nuance no one was really they're just like you don't exist so then i was like oh my god i'm a terrible like not only am i terrible like, the worst person and impermanent but i also don't exist
0: that's a I'm tough just, cocktail
1: <laughs> it was yeah i mean it's like yeah
0: no self actually is is actually better translated as not self mm-hmm. the t is actually super important mm-hmm. i found just personally that that uh that's just my opinion um is actually super interesting, not as nihilistic as one can take it to be. We don't have to get into it here because mm-hmm. there's a lot of other stuff we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get back to it. Yeah. But anyway, I so totally you leave after yeah. six weeks. Where do you yeah.
1: go? Um, so I went to another monastery with Sayada. Well, and this is kind of funny. So basically, Saida Upendita would always tell me to brush my hair because I had dreadlocks at the time. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> And so while I was there, You're I was like
0: a fan of, of um, like, like fish. Yeah. yeah okay, I used to go gotcha. to fish shows sweet, and stuff like that. Sweet. We would not <laughs> yeah. have gotten along.
1: No, you and my husband would. I yeah. would not have gotten No, I already him, get along with yeah. your husband. I only met exactly. him once. He's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was like, you know, a hippie exploring that part of myself. And uh, so I dreadlocks. So when I was there, I like did not take care of them at all. You know, you dreadlocks for white people like can t- are really hard to take care of mm. So So um, I wasn't taking care of them. They like became a big net, so I, I just chopped them off, and some of the nuns shaved my head. And so then I, I happened to be the, the head monk of this next monastery I was going to, Saida Ulaqana, who's up in near, um, he's in the Sagain Hills. And he, um, anyway, he was like, oh great, you're gonna become a nun. And I was like, no, 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 I had these dreadlocks, I had to, ch-, and he was like, no, 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 you'll become a nun. It's not okay for you to have a shaved head and not be a nun, so. I went to this other monastery and became a nun. A Buddhist nun for Wow, yeah. you were a nun. Yeah. How how mm-hmm. long? Uh, 4 weeks. Okay. Yeah. Pretty short. short nun. Totally. Not long.
0: And how was that place?
1: It was awesome. So, a few things, Sadu Lakana, his whole thing is loving-kindness practice, metta. He's kind of known as the loving-kindness monk and um so he does a lot of his monks and nuns practice a lot of that.
0: Can I just jump in and just explain? Yeah. We've talked about mm-hmm. it a lot on the show, but some people maybe just maybe this is their first mm-hmm. episode. It's a practice where you systematically envision people uh, and uh, people you love, people who've been your benefactors, people who are your close friends, people who are neutral, people who you don't like, and then everybody, all all people and animals, and you send them good wishes. Mm-hmm that's a rough description um, mm-hmm. so that, that that was the that was the scene at this place Yep. so M- they were M- doing heads. there's a lot of yeah. meta going on mm-hmm. here and so it's a it's a chiller atmosphere it's a chiller
1: and yeah. also it was a retreat that my teacher Michelle yeah. oh and Joseph Joseph yeah
0: the guy who for a bunch of probably bad reasons agreed to be my teacher yeah he's the best mm-hmm. and he was there just practicing or was no reading? he was teaching oh great
1: so, the te- so they were teaching retreats specifically for westerners oh wow at okay. this monastery so it was right. Michelle and actually Steve Michelle's partner was supposed to come but he couldn't get in to the country so Joseph came <clears throat> so it was the two of them teaching the retreat so that also made it nice
0: atmosphere Yeah, I mean jo- totally, nobody's yeah. nicer than Joseph
1: right and Michelle's like she was kind of she's like my Dharma mother wow like seeing her I as soon as I saw her I just started sobbing oh and I'm sure she, she's like so loving and kind
0: I haven't met her but she sounds mm-hmm. great so yeah. you and but you uh, you, so you did those four weeks and then you kept going you stayed in Burma so
1: no so then I so I stayed for four weeks there and then I went to India oh okay yeah so I disrobed after that but thinking I wanted to become a nun for my life, that was kind of like, this is what I want to do.
0: Wow. Uh, so you went to India with that plan? That Yeah. And did you go to another monastery?
1: I went to, so I, this was all planned out. My high school roommate was meeting me in India. So this was like in February, or we're getting into March. So we, we went to the Dalai Lama teachings every March. In Dharamsala. In Dharamsala, so we went there. Uh, and, and sat in on his teachings for a couple of weeks. Uh, we did a, a retreat, a Tibetan retreat. And then we kind of did, it was sort of like a spiritual quest. We like went to Bodh Gaya and Varanasi, and then went to Nepal and did a Tibetan retreat there.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. At the end of it, were you, did you like? Enlightened. Were you enlightened?
1: Can't you tell? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So you decided not to become a monk. In fact, if I recall, you went back, went to college, uh, even maybe grad school?
1: Yeah, I did. And then right you now. had a
0: career in, in clean energy?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Clean energy and climate finance.
0: And then kind of chucked it all to to, to go run teen retreats. Yeah. Why?
1: There are two things. My mom, You have to ask your mom parents if you can become a monk or nun for life. Oh. And I called my mom from India, and she was like, uh, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I get a say in this? Yeah. No.
1: <laughs> that was a piece of it. And and then actually I saw this Tibetan monk who was like supposedly a psychic Tibetan monk uh, at this monastery that I was practicing at. And I was like, hey, I want to become a nun for my life. This is what I want to do. And he was like, no, you should go home. Go home and and work. He told me to go home and work. I was devastated at the time. But I just, I did. I just went home and went to college. And yeah, I worked in clean energy. And then basically I was volunteering with teen retreats for a number of years. uh, And we decided to make a nonprofit at some point so that we could do more of them around the country. That's IBM. Yeah, that's IBM. So we formed the nonprofit. That was only in 2010 that we made the nonprofit. Oh, and we hired an executive director, this young guy who's super healthy, charismatic young guy. And like just about two months after he started with us, he had he went into a coma and he needed a heart transplant. Whoa. So basically, I, like I was a founding board member and just kind of doing more to get keep the organization functioning, so that we could still do some retreats. He did get a heart transplant, and he's doing awesome. Oh, great. Married and has a baby. And, nice. Yeah, he's doing really well. But basically, he needed someone to take over. And it was it was kind of like the Buddha story of the heavenly messengers is what happened.
0: You're going to have to know. Yeah. I have to explain this, or you want to
1: do it? I'll, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll explain I mean, the whole story of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he uh, was this prince. He was, had a great life. And then he went out, and he left. He was supposed to be protected in the palace, and he left the palace, and he saw a sick person, an old person, and a dying person, and then a monk. And basically that's what encouraged him to start meditating to, or to start kind of on a spiritual quest. So I kind of had this idea that I would someday become, like dedicate myself to meditation completely. But I also had this idea that I really, I wanted to um, teach from having been deeply embedded in the world. Like I didn't want to, a lot of our teachers became teachers when they were, like, young, very young. Joseph. You're right. When he was, like— He
0: he started meditating, like, full-time at 22 or something like that.
1: And Sharon and Michelle, yeah. like, all all of that kind of— a lot of that generation of teachers had done that. A lot of them didn't have kids and get married. And so I just had this, like, inclination that I wanted to be, like, a busy, crazy person and meditate so that I could then teach crazy, busy people about how to meditate. Like.
0: You should start teaching me.
1: <laughs> Great. I mean, I think you have a good teacher.
0: He's, yeah, he's all right. Yeah. But busy crazy, I understand. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, I mean, you right. were in the middle of, I think, telling me about um, your decision to, to go to college and stay, and stay working and... and wait, right. actually, no, you were talking... I was going How I became yeah, the the of, heavenly head, messengers, yeah. yes.
1: So be, so that was my whole idea. At this point, I was like in my early... I was about 30. This young guy, Je- Jesse, who had... Um, Jesse Torrance, who had gotten... Had the heart transplant. was like 29, 30. I met my hu- now husband... Who had was recovering from lymphoma, with stage four cancer, and had a bone marrow transplant, and I mean had been really sick, almost died, and then my roommate who I lived with got leukemia, wow, and started going through um, treatment and had to have a bone marrow transplant, which was pretty crazy having that combination, and then my brother got really sick and died not long after oh, that. Oh man! So basically, it was just this, and all of those people were in their like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, and it was just this moment of like, wait. I, I I love meditation. I love teen retreat. It's like the one time in my year when I don't question whether what I'm doing is worthwhile. Mm. There might not be a later. Basically, it was like there might not be a later. There might not be like when you're 60, you can do that. This so, was
0: the right time to hear the impermanence argument yeah. as opposed to when you're 18.
1: Exactly. So then it was like, right, carpet. It was more of the like take advantage of this time. Like, 30. If this is what you love and it's most meaningful to you, you should be doing it now. And so...
0: thriller. thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham. Tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deep D. Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep D. Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice. It takes you into the uh, Underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500, 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Why did you like working? Why do you like working with teens so much? Because I mean, a lot of sane adults like do their best to avoid teenagers mm-hmm. at all costs. Um, I'm actually not anti-teenager, although you know, I was in a, I gave a speech earlier today at a high school, and oh, um, I mean, they're crazy. Mm-hmm. I love them. They're crazy yeah. though. So what? Why do you? Why do you? You've, you're, you actually live with a bunch of teenagers because your husband teaches at a school in suburban Massachusetts, and you guys live in one of the dorms. You can't get away from these people.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um uh, yeah, I love working with teenagers, with adolescents. Uh, so I've recently been working now more also with college students and love that age group as well. I mean, I love how much energy they have. I love, they're so creative and energetic. So just it's just fun. Is one piece of it. The other piece is like I I like to say they have less like crust on their hearts than adults do. So they much more quickly put in the right atmosphere with the right conditions like learning this practice with a bunch of people who are kind and seeing them in their best selves they go back to that best self pretty quickly and just like all of that natural human instinct to be generous to be compassionate to be caring in five days like they're transformed and I think that that happens a lot more quickly with young people
0: that's amazing and your description Mm -hmm. of it is Mm -hmm. fantastic I'm just interpolating back to when Mm -hmm. I was uh, a kid and just really a a knucklehead Mm -hmm. and not nice I just don't know what would have happened if I went on one of those. I don't think you would have been able to get me onto one of those yeah. retreats, but I wasn't in touch with a best self.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a few things. First of all, I don't think that every teenager should meditate necessarily or come on teen retreat. I mean, I do think it would be cool if every teenager knew that there was this practice and they could kind of get a taste of it and then they could decide if it was helpful for them. But a retreat is intense. It's five They meditate about five hours a day. And we definitely, they, they have to want to be there to come on the retreat, but we definitely have kids whose parents strongly encourage them to go.
0: What is, t- t- tell me what, what you do on these retreats.
1: So it's it's basically a mix throughout the day. We do sitting meditation, walking meditation, yoga, um, loving kindness every day, compassion practice. We do two hours of small group work, which is.
0: Yeah. There's, is, is that hot seat exercise? Yeah. So what is a hot seat exercise?
1: So a hot, a hot, I, I think of a hot seat as like a group meditation. You're in the hot seat right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> part of it, but there would be like 10 other people staring at me and asking me questions. Gotcha. That would be the, the process.
0: Right. But this is more torturous for you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, so part of hot seat, the whole idea of it is that like, so you are the object of meditation. If you choose to be, you become the object of meditation. And so part of that, just like we're practicing with our breath, with our mind, you're cultivating that kind, curious attention but on that person so we really practice like you keep your eyes on them you mm-hmm. keep your attention. if you notice that your mind's wandering off you bring it back uh, i'm
0: doing that with you i'm not i'm not yeah. that was not sarcastic
1: yeah great and then and then it's this like the it's
0: weird qu- that i'm like the kind of guy who has to say that
1: <laughs> well then it's a, then the whole the whole idea of it is like you're just following your kind curiosity so you're like there's no um agenda behind your questions they're just like What's kind of arising in this moment out of curiosity, and you follow that. Though they're not necessarily often, those get into questions that are pretty hot, like mm. profound. But it's not like you're trying to ask the hardest question. It's just like what's naturally arising.
0: But teenagers can be mean, so that does, this doesn't it doesn't never become sort of nasty. Uh, well, it's,
1: it's really facilitated. So the adult staff in the group are facilitating it. So you have to raise your hand, to ask a question. You ask your question, they answer. You have to say thank you. It's over. You, it's not a back and forth. Okay. So as a facilitator, we have a lot of control over.
0: Not prosecutorial.
1: Yeah, we get to kind of shift direction. And, um, but we really rarely have to do that because the whole atmosphere that we create on the teen retreat is uh, so kind and accepting. Like, this is the like, foundation of what's happening. And that happens because of the staff, because of the, the way that we engage them. It's like, people want to be authentic and kind we all we want to do i mean we're mean because we're trying to protect ourselves Mm -hmm. in some way Mm -hmm. so if given a space where you feel safe to do that people will do that
0: tell me if you think this is a a -hmm. close enough analog Mm -hmm. when i was 12 and 13 all my friends were having bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and i was only half jewish but i like bull kind of bullied my parents into like Mm -hmm. sending me to hebrew school because i wanted to go i wanted a a bar mitzvah for social Mm -hmm. acceptance and maybe some cash and uh Hebrew school had a whole different vibe when I was at mm-hmm. Hebrew school, uh, where it was like kind of like openly, dopily uh, nerdy. where We are learning this other language mm-hmm. where they went in the wrong direction and we would sing these Hebrew folk songs. And um, it was like actually people dropped the mask in that mm-hmm. context. Close?
1: Yeah, I think that is. I think that that's what the kids talk about. They totally drop the mask completely. And I mean, they take the precepts to be kind to each other. And then we're facilitating this process. Like we're – there's a really high teen-to-staff ratio. So if we're seeing kind of behavior, language, like we're actively facilitating.
0: How? What do you do – how do you – you talked about the need for rules. What do you do if kids run off and are, you know, hooking up in the woods or they're smoking weed or something like that? What, what's the punishment?
1: They have to go home. Oh, okay. Yeah, we send them home. And the thing is, though, with all of this, we try not to – like. We really don't want to have a policing relationship with teens. It's like really a trust and deep respect, and basically saying like, we trust you to like, and if you respect the spaces, is what we need to do. And we really talk about why, and we have the older teens who have been there before talk about why. I mean, and they say the most beautiful things about why, why it's important to be celibate on retreat or
0: what? Why, what do they say?
1: I mean, one of the biggest things is like wh- that energy when you're attracted to someone, when you're crushing on someone, is so distracting, and then it like. T- takes away so part of what we're doing is creating this inclusive community and when two people are doing that it kind of it cr- naturally c- creates this exclusion and takes away from the kind of safety and connection of the whole group it's like one of the things they'll say and just for themselves then then a lot of them will say like I feel safe here I don't feel like I have to like be protecting myself from kind of the sexual gaze I can just be friends with people and feel safe in that way
0: that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. it really does mm-hmm. um, what else goes on at the i I kind of cut you off mm-hmm. when you were listing things to talk about the hot seat but you, I, there is some hiking on some of these
1: yeah so so the other thing that happens on most of our retreats is or all, yeah we always have a, an hour and a half workshop period in the afternoon which is um the it's a whole range of things the teens get to choose what they want to do but those will be like mindful sports uh which Doug my husband always does arts creative writing but also discussions about like gender sexuality diversity we do a lot of like social justice workshops things like that and then hiking our nature practices so that's a that's our our residential retreat we basically rent a place like an IMS and then have a teen retreat there when we go out into the wilderness so we then we also have these a backpacking wilderness retreat which is a little bit longer and we go backpacks go out in the wilderness and camp along the way um so that the schedule is a little bit different, but we're meditating out in the wilderness. We still have the silence at night. That's and funny. then we do a, a longer solo period. So wow. there's two nights when they'll be alone. Wow. And we you know, we encourage them to practice, to be to use mindfulness in that setting.
0: There's a funny, um, I don't know if you read Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. He talks about mm-hmm. how he was on some sort of teen retreat. I don't think it was a meditation retreat, but mm-hmm. some sort of wilderness experience when he was a kid and there was a... An alone part, a solitary part of it, and he said his letters home rivaled anything you would have seen from Gallipoli and uh, you know Shiloh, just like complete self pity and all this stuff. Because I don't think he was prepared the way you're preparing kids to be alone and and look at their mind. Um, What kind of transformations, if any, do you see on these retreats?
1: I mean, we see massive transformations. I mean, we've had kids. I'll just think about this summer. They're, they so they have to be alcohol and drug free and ideally we ask them to be alcohol and drug free before the, if they've been struggling with addiction but we'll have kids that, have, that come and it'll be their first time not smoking pot for years when they come on the retreat and just like their ability to first of all start to be with whatever the feelings are that they've been avoiding and then go through that process of like really getting close to what's actually happening in their experience and why they might like why they've been using Pot or just a drug to kind of avoid that, and then what they might want to like that they don't want to do it again. So that kind of shift. For me, some of the most powerful pieces are seeing the connections that happen across some pretty big difference between the kids. Like we have a real diversity of teenagers on our retreats. It's a radical sliding scale. So some kids pay nothing. Some, you know, come from really wealthy wealthy families. So they're coming from completely different life experiences, and these in the small groups in those hot seats, like one of the big things they see is like, yeah, we have differences, but actually ultimately, you know, we experience life in a similar way on some level. So kids just seeing that across what they, you'd initially, and they'll say this all the time, like I had this idea about who you were, you know, you were a jock or you were a punk or whatever it is. And then by the end of the small group, it's like, they're so connected and intimate because they've seen below, uh, so that feel is really meaningful for me when I see yeah. them connect across that. Yeah.
0: And that scales to the rest of your life because every time we see somebody subconsciously, we're making up a story about them. Mm-hmm. You wrote a piece in, in Greater Good, which is a, a website associated affiliated with the University of California, Berkeley, I believe. Yep. About, well, first of all, it showed that teenagers are really stressed these days and that um, apparently there was a study that, that shows that meditation appears to help. Do you think we ought to be Teaching every, you know, should every any parent on the line now, uh, uh, listening right now, should they be thinking about meditation for their kids? And should we be doing it in public schools? Mm -hmm. What about concerns around sectarian uh, Mm -hmm. influence, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff about the the Buddha and Mm -hmm. whatnot?
1: I mean, so coming back, what that was referring to was we did research on our retreats. That was an article about the research that came out on our retreats. Oh, okay. That was just published. That was basically, you know, showing that th- even three months after the retreat, the teens had improvements in mood and a lot of it and around their like life satisfaction and how they felt about themselves. But actually, what was most touching for me about or important about that research was that the teens who had the biggest shift in self-compassion who who developed more versus mindfulness. So there's a study of like. You could see how mindful they were, and then how self-compassionate they were. The self-compassion was much more correlated with their uh, the benefits lasting hmm. and with greater benefits later. Hmm. And they they also were asked like, are you doing loving kindness meditation or mindfulness? And the more loving kindness that they did, that had these like longer-lasting benefits. So that was just interesting for me in terms of how we frame like what we teach and hmm. stuff like that. And it makes sense because all of us are dealing with the jerk in our heads, yeah. as you call it. Yeah, well, um, I use a different word. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's what that was about. But do I think, uh, should every parent listening to this get their kid to meditate? I think every parent listening to this should meditate themselves. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. And let that be the influence for their kids on some level. And then, I mean, this is like the quintessential challenge. I think if you have younger kids, you can definitely do practices. And there's a lot of great books out there that you can do. Just simple moments of peace, you know, quiet, feel your breath, feel your emotions. But also with younger kids, again, it's like... They know this way better than we do. So it's more like just hang out with your kids and really hang out with them. It's probably the best thing to do. I
0: can't see getting my one and a half year old to meditate.
1: Yeah, I don't, probably not. I think with a one and a half year old, that's you meditating on him. That's the meditation.
0: You mean just paying attention to him when I'm with him? Full,
1: complete attention. And then maybe following his lead.
0: Does chewing on his fat leg count as meditation? Because I do that a lot.
1: (laughs) Could be. Yeah, I mean I was like I was actually just with the baby with the father asking me this exact question last night.
0: About the chewing on the leg? Uh
1: about how, how to meditate with the baby. Gotcha, he was less screwed up than yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. But he was doing you know, yeah, he, he was cuddling he was doing a lot of cuddling, it's cute. But uh I also think you know, the baby was like picking up the grass and like trying to eat everything the way that yes, they do. It's annoying. <laughs> but I was also like but you could also like join them and get that fascinated in the grass and like yeah, you know yeah, what I mean that absolutely. kind of process absolutely. which is in a way very much like mindfulness. Yeah. So I I'm just making that up cuz I don't have kids and I don't actually know what it's like No, yeah,
0: but you can see the world afresh <laughs> just by just empathizing with the fact that they are doing that that
1: very thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I think with the younger kids that's what you can do. I think maybe when they get to 4 or 5 you can start to do some simple like there's a really cute one where they put their teddy bear on their on belly, the belly and yeah, breathe yeah. in.
0: But the, I think there—that's actually happening even south of four or five, right? Isn't Richie Davidson, who's been on yeah. this podcast, I think mm-hmm. he was doing some stuff with preschoolers, really? Yeah, well, four is obviously preschool, yeah. but I think even lower than right. that. Right. I don't know. Don't yeah. quote me on that.
1: Okay. I mean, I don't. I'm focused on teenagers,
0: right? But so okay. So if I'm a parent with a teenager, yeah. what do I? And my, and my teenager is yeah. a jerk, like I was. Mm-hmm. Um, what What do you do about it?
1: Right. So as you know, if you're a parent of a teenager, you can't get them. If you tell them to meditate, is probably like the worst. Way to get them to meditate. Yes. So one of our, the call that we get the most at at IBME is parents saying, how do I get my kid to come on your retreat?
0: Mm. Uh, What do you say?
1: Basically, we have videos. We've made a bunch of, so one of the ways we try to do is have videos with teens talking about their experience. And teens, you know, they're normal kids. They're cool kids. Like So we say, you might direct them to watch this video or, uh, you know, just leave a flyer around. (laughs) Basically, we try to get our marketing to be, Teen friendly gotcha. in that way.
0: Not aimed at the
1: parents. Yeah, exactly. It's not
0: going to be a tough sell for parents, I would Right,
1: say. exactly. So, then and then what we find is like it's way, as the teen retreat will grow really organically because they bring, teens will bring their friends mm. and siblings year after year. So it grows much more that way. I do think having mindfulness in schools is really great and effective. And, um, But again, I I think it totally depends on who the person is. And this is, you know, we've mentioned my husband, but he's, I don't teach in schools. I'll go in and do presentations or day longs, Um, but he's full-time teaching mindfulness to all the students of the school. And he was, he's also, he went to this high school and he's in the sports hall of fame at the high school. He was like a national champion lacrosse player. and, And he's also incredibly sweet. But basically, you know, he's like, he's a great ambassador for young people. You know, to to play that role to introduce this, so I think it does kind of it does matter a little bit how you frame it, but mostly what you need to be is totally authentic with young people if
0: you're going to teach it. Yeah, but the school where your husband teaches is a mm-hmm. private school. Yeah, there have been some you know skirmishes in public schools where people mm-hmm. try to bring it in, including on Cape Cod, uh, mm-hmm. not far from you, because mm-hmm. you're you're in, uh, outside of Boston, um, where parents of faith are unhappy about this. Mm-hmm. Do you have a view?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in that case, they dropped it because yeah, the, yeah. the loss didn't go through. Because they could yeah. there tell are that it was But other places they've good. succeeded. I think more with yoga. Yeah. Then, then really, mind, mindfulness hasn't really gotten to that stage yet. In a way, the community was hoping it would in Cape Cod, so that we could, it could, the case could be, you know, taken and we could see what would happen. I think the way that it's so, you definitely have to be careful about how it's taught. But we're not teaching any belief system. I think that's what it comes down to for me. It's. And and actually, we're often like, you don't don't believe me. Like, actually, don't believe me. That's
0: what the Buddha said,
1: Mm -hmm. right? So we take that all the time. It's just like, don't believe. Like this, just explore for yourself and see if you find this to be interesting. And I honestly think if a teen comes on our teen retreat, they they really try it, and then they're like, I don't I don't like meditation. I'll be like, great, awesome, don't do it. I really think that. But um, so taking that kind of a stance, and then we're not. You know, I pointed, I talked about dukkha, or We don't We do not do that, right? Suffering. Suffering. Yeah, but yeah. in a way, you can just say, like, it's just the reality. Like, you were saying it's common sense. Like, we're just...
0: It's maybe advanced common
1: sense. Yeah. But in a way, when you point it out, you're like, uh, oh, yeah. there's stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, things happen that we don't want to happen. Mm-hmm. And most of us have had some experience by the time we're a teenager that's painful, that we don't like. We also, like... Pointing out what's going on in their minds, their feelings being out of control or painful, like, and giving them specific tools for managing that—it's common sense. So basically, I just don't think it's a. There's not a lot of belief or dogma to it. So uh, to me, it doesn't get—I don't think it um, gets into the space of religious.
0: What's your daily practice now? How much are you doing what, what, and what?
1: Right now, I'm practicing between about an hour and two two hours a day.
0: Nice. It's mm-hmm. good. It's a lot.
1: Yeah. My primary practice for the f- past few years, like the past year and a half, has been doing um, really somatic meditation.
0: mean body sensations?
1: Yeah, body sensations. But I would say body sensations from the inside.
0: Okay, I don't understand.
1: <laughs> like, okay, so right now. Like
0: feeling your pancreas?
1: Well, okay, f- right now, like feel your foot. If you feel your foot. Yeah. Are you feeling your foot as if you're looking down at your foot? I don't think so. You like you feel like your awareness is inside of the foot. Yeah, I do. Great. So that's that's what I mean. So really being like deeply embedded, having your awareness inside of the experience.
0: Yeah. Right. I think I do. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I I could be completely overestimating. I mean, I am known to overestimate my abilities in lots of areas. Um, but I think so. I, but I see the difference. Mm-hmm. I see what you're yeah. saying. There's a difference between thinking about what your mm-hmm. hand feels like and just feeling it.
1: Right. And even like. Sometimes it can it can be really connected to this kind of it can almost be like a witnessing you know like we're looking down at our experience yeah, yeah. but this is kind of
0: letting it well up
1: be, yeah exactly
0: but even that well up to what as if there's some nowhere
1: yeah to whom but that so so I don't actually think of it as a well up yeah it's like just feel th- it. just being having the awareness kind of embedded inside of the experience that's so that's a piece of it but also just kind of. Doing that also I find deeply relaxing.
0: So how does it actually work? You sit down and start feeling your foot? Like what?
1: what's the? Um, okay, and so the other piece of what I'm doing too is, is a, um, a loving-kindness practice, mm-hmm. but a somatic. So not, no longer using the words, not doing the kind of visualization or mantra practice. It's much more of a felt sense, loving-kindness practice.
0: So, so. you call somebody to mind and and have just the felt sense of them?
1: Yeah, but then it's like the felt sense of wishing well,
0: uh, but but t- with it with a target, um, or is it just wishing well?
1: I both. I'll do both. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And, but how does the so the somatic stuff, to use your term, how does that work?
1: Um, so I've been practicing a lot with a teacher named Reggie Ray.
0: Yeah, you've told me about him,
1: mm-hmm. and um, he's got really amazing meditations. So. Kind of what an hour-long practice could look like is starting lying down, which is great. It's a good way to convince yourself to meditate. Mm-hmm. And then actually doing a... It can lead
0: to a nap, though.
1: Yeah. So you have to, like, be... Sometimes I'll even... I set my alarm, and I do, like, 10... I have a 10-minute ding. So gotcha. So then I have to sit up. So first 10 minutes lying down, like... It's a body scan, but with the... Um, w- with relaxing. So a lot of body scans... Are just, like, just feel what's happening and you're not changing the experience, there is an attitude of trying to relax. I do that, body. too.
0: So with, when I do a body scan meditation, mm-hmm. I start – I say to myself, like, if I start at the top of the head, soften the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the way Joseph teaches it, or often <laughs> teaches it, and then mm-hmm. that, that you're actually softening your muscles or whatever each at each – area of the body it's so actually it is quite relaxing but mm-hmm. you are also paying attention so i feel like you get both
1: right totally yeah which is great i i haven't impract- i actually have not practiced with joseph that much
0: you can get a little buzzy
1: yeah totally which there's is a, great
0: there's a little natural high there right and maybe is, sometimes more than a little
1: oh yeah you can get kind of like all these like really pleasant sensations yeah. running through your body for sure which is like a factor it's one of the factors of awakening it's one of the like it's, joy, like joy. Yes, it's a Piti, that yeah. energetic joy.
0: P I T I. It's an ancient Indian word, but yes, I I agree. Although it's, I worry a little bit about you know I have a pretty addictive personality. Mm-hmm. I worry a little bit about like, you know, am I just trying to get a buzz? Do you? As, do I have an you? addictive personality? Well,
1: no, no, no. Like, what do you, what do you think? Do you do you uh, feel like addicted to that feeling? Uh, yeah. Actually, it gets a mm-hmm. little old after yeah. a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is interesting mm-hmm. because I was so impressed with myself that I could even get there. Mm-hmm. Because meditation was for so many years just such a death march that uh, that I could make it pleasant sometimes, or that it could be pleasant. I, of course, personalized it by making by me making it pleasant. But I was sort of proud of myself, mm-hmm. and then it was just kind of once the, even being proud of myself wore off. It was it was just the novelty of it, and then the, it felt good. I wanted more, but then after a while, I was like, "All right, uh, I get it."
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So I'm. I mean, yeah. It's people say that, but it doesn't seem. I don't feel like I get addicted to it in that same way. I mean, there are moments when it will start to shift, and there'll be that feeling of like, oh no. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You of know. course. But they're just noticing that, yeah. right? Just noticing the clinging to mm-hmm. the thing is is important.
1: Right. So just so right. So it's like it's different than the kind of addictive behavior of like having another drink or something. But so basically, I do that. I like, I lie down. I deeply relax my body. I sit up. Um. If I'm doing just a not a loving kindness practice, I'm feeling my body sitting and just holding the awareness kind of in the center of my body. So feeling the posture. I've gotten a lot more into posture since working with Reggie. So a much straighter back. You know, re- really working with the elongated back, um, and then lightly holding the breath, the attention on the breath at the low belly. Um,
0: and then when you get lost. As you say, escorting your attention gently back to the...
1: To the posture. So the first thing I'll do is come back to the posture and notice, because you'll notice when you do that, the body often tenses Uh when we get lost, Uh right? There's two things that happen. One, the body tenses when we get lost. The other thing that I have found really interesting is often we get lost because there's some sensation we don't want to feel. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Dissociation. Yeah.
1: That's like almost always when I'm getting lost. There's something happening in my experience that I don't want to feel. And so then what I'll do is I'll come back, soften and relax and look for what's going on. Like, yeah. What is it that I don't want to be with?
0: Joseph talks about struggle as mm-hmm. a feedback. When you're struggling with something you're experienced, go take a look at that.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's like, oh, wow, there's this like total clenching in my yeah. chest.
0: Or I'm pissed and I don't want to let it mm-hmm. be there.
1: Right. And then it's like this experience of, like, then I, what I try to do is soften around it, get close to it you know develop some like willingness to be with it and then just you just notice how the mind will naturally like bounce off Mm -hmm. because it doesn't want to be there um so that's that's basically that practice like um when i do loving kindness practice uh, i i connect into the earth in a really deep way which now things is a little reluctant to talk about it. Right, cause cause it sounds a I little... picture you with dreadlocks
0: doing this. I know exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, but it's, what's interesting is like, <laughs> just in this moment, right? Uh, getting a sense, it's almost like you let your awareness drop down beneath you, and you, you even with this building, you can think about the building being embedded, the foundation in the earth, and the way there's a way that that spreads out all around us. And when I do that, it just sort of somehow kind of chills my nervous system a little bit.
0: You know, for all of my nihilistic mm-hmm. sarcasm, uh, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I see it and mm-hmm. I agree.
1: Yeah. So I don't know why, but it just does.
0: <laughs> well, there's right. that term groundedness, right? right? I mean, yeah. it's not, yeah. you know, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. So you were you were mildly uh, uh, amb- ambivalent when you walked in. I could, I could sense it on you when I mm-hmm. walked into the room and you were about doing this. Po- How are you feeling now? You feeling okay? Are you still kinda a little bit freaking out?
1: Um a little bit freaking out. Really? Yeah. You you did very well.
0: Okay. Um Mm -hmm. what's the website?
1: The website is uh I B as in Boy M-E. So inward bound mindfulness Mm -hmm. education, I B-M-E dot info.
0: So there you have it. There's another edition of the 10% happier podcast. If you like it. Please make sure to subscribe, tell some friends about us, leave us a quick review. All that really helps us keep the show going. I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank the people who make this podcast possible internally here at ABC News. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. If you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests we should bring on the show, the best way to do that is to hit me up on Twitter, at Harris. Uh, I love hearing from you, and I really do listen to the suggestions, so please keep them coming. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how to meditate, you can check out the 10% Happier app. We'll be back, as we are, every Wednesday with a brand new episode. Until then, take it easy. Thank you